Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, coming to you from Malibu, California. Today, we are going to be speaking with the world's number one authority on intention and spirituality, Lynn McTaggart. She's an amazing author and speaker. She is an award-winning journalist and the author of seven books, including some worldwide bestsellers such as The Intention Experiment, The Field, and The Bond. And today, we're going to be talking about her new book, The Power of Eight, Harnessing the Miraculous Energies of a Small Group to Heal Others, Your Life, and the World. Lynn's books have been translated into 30 languages, and she was also featured in a very popular film you might have seen about quantum physics called What the Bleep Do We Know? Down the Rabbit Hole. Very excited to introduce Lynn McTaggart's work to our audience today, something I think everyone is going to be fascinated by. Hey, Lynn, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's delightful to be here with you, Elle. I've had a I've been a huge fan of your work since 2008 when you published a huge hit called The Intention Experiment. And I like you I discovered um and maybe you can get into this for our audience but you know I really wanted to understand the inner workings behind thought affecting or influencing matter. What was this law of attraction and the secret and all of these nuances behind this because I saw that it worked in my life and I also saw it didn't work at certain times and others and your book really was the first of its kind to delve into the scientific experiments behind it. So before we, and you've written so many books since and have created large scale and small scale experiments to prove these points, but if you could, for our audience, let us know, what was it that led you down that road to begin with as well? Well, I mean, probably because I'm a 21st century doubting Thomas. Um, You know, when I started writing my book, The Field, um, I interviewed many, many scientists who were on the cutting edge of dis- of discovery, who were essentially finding all sorts of things about us that are much more exciting than we thought we were. And one of those things was the idea that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. And also the idea that thoughts aren't locked inside our heads. And so I wanted to figure out, okay, what exactly does this mean? Does this mean, you know, we can cure cancer with our thoughts? You know, how how far can we go here? And I was, I felt that there was a big implication that was kind of getting trivialized into getting more stuff. You know, the idea that you can just think yourself to greater wealth or, you know, to a, a parking space or something like that. And I thought, no, wait a minute. If this is so powerful, you know, let's use it for something huge. Let's do something philanthropic with it. And I was also really curious, what happens when lots of think people, when lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? Does that modify the effect or... Um, or 
Does it amplify the effect? So I decided, again, like a 21st century doubting Thomas, that I was going to put this to the test, like the biggest test of all. And I thought about it and I thought, well, I've got loads of scientists I know now, and I have lots of readers around the world because my books are in 30 languages. So if I just put these these two things together, I'd have the biggest global laboratory in the world. And so that's what I did. Um, and I started testing the power of thought through experiments set up by one of a number of scientists I worked with at prestigious universities like University of Arizona, Penn State University, University of California, and so forth. And we set up these controlled studies and started out really small, you know, like trying to affect a simple process of a leaf or seeing if we could make seeds grow faster. And every so often I would invite my internet audience or an actual audience if I was speaking somewhere to send an intention to this very well-controlled target. And we would have controls in this experiment, so some things that weren't getting intended for. And then the scientists would be blind to what we were sending intention to. You know, it was a blinded experiment. In other words, we didn't tell them what the target was until after it was all over and they finished measuring. And, you know, we ran these experiments 30 times, everything from, as I say, very, very subtle processes of a leaf to trying to uh, change the pH of water, purify water, to lowering violence in war-torn areas and violent areas, to trying to heal someone of PTSD. And of the 30 experiments, 26 showed measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. So just to put that in context, um, there's probably no drug out there that has that kind of consistent effect. That's amazing. Um, there, there's such large scales of this and small scales, and I know we'll get into so many more of these. For people that are trying to wrap their heads around how intention can infect, you know, matter, something tangible outside oneself, could you, uh, you know, what I'm recalling right now is a couple of examples. One on the large scale, which I thought was interesting, which was with the REGs, where they placed different parts of the world where 9-11 registered, there were, were the mass events. And then maybe you can get into that, you know, cancer cell Petri dish with the various healers and the different types of intention, just to whet people's appetite on on how interesting this is and the nuances behind it. Sure. Um I mean, the studies that convinced me that thoughts were an actual something um, were studies on everything from seeds themselves to electronic equipment um, to plants to other human beings in terms of distant healing. And uh, one of the, and, you know, healing patients with um, all kinds of illnesses, including cancer. And one of the ongoing studies, and he also studied our intention experiments, particularly our peace intention experiments, was uh, a guy called uh, Roger Nelson, who was from Princeton University. And he had been working with uh, Robert John and Brenda Dunn of the Princeton Pear Research Lab, which was a lab set up to test whether or not human thoughts could affect electronic equipment. And so Dr. John invented these things called REG machines that were basically like an electronic toss of the coin. And he and his lab team configured these random 
machines so that they would pretty much, they were programmed to randomly have an output of, say, heads or tails, 50% of the time each. And oftentimes they were set up as a computerized system of flashing images. So there might be an image of cowboys and then an image of Indians, and they would each flash up approximately 50% of the time because it was random. So Dr. Nelson decided to see whether or not there was such a thing as a collective consciousness and whether it could affect these machines. So he had dozens and dozens of these machines dotted all over the world, running continuously, and that data was pouring into one hub that he would download and analyze. And he tried to compare it to moments of collective joy in the world or collective horror, you know, collective joy like the millennium, the turn of the millennium and New Year's, to collective horror, the uh, effect and the, um, the reaction to 9-11 when it happened, when the Twin Towers were hit. And he found it that at moments, particularly moments of collective horror, those machines moved off their random course. But they also changed during moments of unity. Now, I ran three peace intention experiments, and uh, as of this recording, soon to be four, we're running an American peace intention experiment um, this autumn, September 30th to October 5th. And um, we found that when his machines were running, when we analyzed them afterward, they moved off of their random course just during the 10-minute window of our intention experiment uh, when we were intending for peace. And it was very interesting in the big peace intention experiments I've done, we've always run them for eight, six or eight days. And the, this showed that just in that 10-minute window over each day of the six or eight days, the machines changed and became less random. So that was one amazing example that our thoughts aren't necessarily locked inside our heads and that we are probably connected much more. Our consciousness is beamed out of us almost like a, a television transmitter. And it is far more involved in some sort of collective field. Now, I wrote about this in the field, the idea that we're all part of a giant quantum energy field. And, um, and there have been many, many healing experiments, as you say. And one of the interesting ones was what kind of healing tends to work best with cancer? And from memory, this was, they had various um, negative intentions and very, um, very sort of amorphous intentions. And it seemed that when the intentions were a little more specific, um, but not negative, more toward just allowing these uh, cancer cells to essentially uh, evaporate, they had the best effect. Now, with our experiments, we have found over these 30 experiments, and so have many scientists, that the more specific, the better. Framed in a positive way, but the more specific, the better. So it wasn't about, like, the one that didn't yield the best results and reducing, like, the levels of cancer cells was the one that was just intending, like, hate to kill the cancer, right? Like, that wasn't the one. 
that wasn't the winner, right? There were a few levels. And so sending the ultra negative to just kill it was not the one that worked. No, exactly. Exactly. And that's an interesting thing for people to understand when they are trying to use visualization to heal their own cancer. Um, you know, oftentimes what we use is negative intention. You know, we, we try to imagine a battleground with us killing that cancer, ourselves obliterating the cancer. Now that may work for people, but what has tended to what we've tended to find is that when it is positive and yet um, and yet um, specific, it t- seems to be the best. Do you remember what that positive specific intention was out of the healers that were doing different intentions towards those cells? The first was that the natural order be reinstated and the cells growth rate returned to normal. The next one was this kind of Tao, generalized Tao visualization, only imagining three of the cancer cells remaining. Third one didn't have an intention, simply had God, you know, God decide, basically have his will thing. Then he offered unconditional love to the cancer cells. And finally, he carried out one Uh, a negative one, visualizing the cells dematerializing, either going into the light and the void. Um, So the most powerful were undirected intentions, asking the cells to return to the natural order. That inhibited their cells' growth by uh, 39%. Now, that look at that, though, um, and acquiescing to God's will was not very, that was half as effective. And the Taoist visualization was too, and unconditional acceptance had nothing, nor did imagining the cells dematerializing. So in these instances, the thought wasn't focused enough. And I mean, that's really what I'm talking about here. So, and um, when he, you know, and then he played around with combining things, um, and notice the most powerful of all was that Taoist visualization and a request for the cells to return to the natural order. So the visualization was saying, look, I only want three cells there. And the um, returning to the natural order was really the most positive of saying, look, I want them to return to normal. Yeah, specific and positive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we can talk about that. Um, it's just that my big emphasis is always on it being the most specific. And that, I guess, tends to suggest that. In all of your, you've done all these experiments. There's so many great, exciting ones. I mean, obviously, and they're all in your book and detailed, and they really instill one with a sense of power to be able to affect. What are some examples, either through experience and or your personal life, where wow, you were just blown away by either someone else's transformation um, or your own. What are some that uh, really have hit you? Because obviously there's, you know, the random, the REGs where someone can say, oh, I'd like more Indians to show up on the visual versus cowboys. And that can work, but that might not hit someone as hard like, oh, wow, I need to look into this. Because, you know, on our podcast, we talk about health, we talk about body-mind connection, but we don't talk about mind-matter connection. And sometimes, like you said, it's selfishly inward-directed uh, versus things we can do outward to help others in the world as well. So what are some of the ones that really stand out? Well, the ones that really stand out for me 
uh, were some of the results of our large scale, our own large scale intention experiments gave me the biggest wow because they had the most unintended effects. And, and actually that started with workshops. And that's when I had my first kind of aha and oh my God moment. Um, I had decided around 2007 when the intention experiment came out that I ought to run some workshops, but I'm a journalist by training. And so I hadn't run workshops before in any great capacity. And so I wasn't really sure how to do this. And I thought, how am I going to show people how intention manifests over a weekend? So I'm talking to my husband about this and I say, well, I don't know, maybe we'll just put them in groups of eight. And we'll ask them to send intention to one of the people of the group with some sort of health challenge. And he turned to me and said, yeah, the power of eight. I like that. He's a journalist too. Catchy. So we did this. We ran our first workshop in 2008 in Chicago. And we got the audience, put them into groups of eight toward the end of Saturday, our first day. Had them get in groups, and I played a little music. I was telling them to do certain things, hold hands, all send the intention statement together mentally, etc. Making it up totally as I'm going along. I, you know, or you can put a, you know, just maintain an unbroken connection, or you can put your hands on the person, like the spokes of a wheel, and just send intention to this person. And I felt that it'd probably be a nice, relaxing, calming experience for everyone, a little bit like getting a facial. And so the next day, this is what I thought, and then the next day, I asked the people who had had intention sent to them to come to the front and handed them the mic in turn. And this is what they said. One woman had IBS for years, and suddenly she felt like her gut was completely clear. Another woman had had migraines, suffered from migraines for decades, and she had the first day without a headache. And someone else had knee pain that was all gone. They felt they were walking normally. And on and on it went for an hour. And I'm just sitting there with my mouth open thinking, oh my God. And also not liking this at all because I am a journalist by training, as I say. Um, I am not a healer, nor do I aspire to be a healer. And, um, and I felt, you know, I'm not an Eric Pearl. And wait a minute, this is going to, this is weird. This is going to undermine my big, important intention experiments. However, in every workshop I ran from then until the present, the same things have happened. I put people in groups. I have them send healing to intention to each other. And these amazing healings occur, instant healings, or somebody just keeps getting better and better. Um, there was Laura's mother, in Denver, who had scoliosis and was in total pain. And after her little group, she said her pain was gone. And then her daughter wrote me a, a month or two later to say that they'd had to adjust the mirror in, the, in her car, her rearview mirror, because her back was much straighter. Or Paul, who had his arm was hurting so much, um, and he had his arm in, in the brace, and it was basically immobile. And the next day, he had his brace off and his arm was normal. And a woman with arthritis who had to walk step by step. She couldn't do passing steps and uh, was in a lot of pain. And, then, and she found that evening she was walking normally up to her hotel room and it carried on the next day. And a guy with a vitamin D problem in assimilating vitamin D so that his spine was curved almost like a question mark. 
and um, severely curved. And he felt during the intention his back being pulled, almost like somebody was trying to straighten him out. And he felt like he could breathe so much better afterward. And a woman with MS who showed up without her crutches the next day. And, uh, you know, a a woman with cataracts who said she was 80% better. And, you know, on and on and on, hundreds, if not thousands of people like this. And I was so frightened by this, which is why, as I say, this started happening in 2008. It took me until now to write about this because I kept saying to myself, I need more documented evidence. I need more proof. And the other weird thing that happened was we had some very successful outcomes with intention. I mean, one of the most intriguing were the peace intention experiments, um, For instance, in 2008, we ran one to send intention to lower violence and injuries and killings to Sri Lanka and a section of Sri Lanka, which was in the middle of a 25-year civil war. And the government had not been gaining in any way. And the Tamil Tigers, the rebels, had choked off the entire north. They were holding the north. And uh, no one was making any inroads. It was kind of an impasse of violence. And so we sent intention, and it was kind of scary during the thing because intention, well, during the the week of intention, it was eight days, violence quadrupled. So I got really frightened. But then it plummeted to well below the levels that we'd started with. And I had a professor of statistics, Dr. Jessica Utz, who is very familiar with doing consciousness research statistics, analyze from two years before to several months after our intention to to create a time analysis, which basically kind of takes a, makes a line and creates a line of averages from each week of the two years before and then afterward, and then models a prediction of where it should go based on the past and based on the past and present. How, where should the violence levels be? So she did this modeling, and our actual numbers were well below it. That's so cool. I'm curious about that. So on a large scale like that, if, I'm, if we're trying to intend peace towards a war-torn nation— I can see that being where on their side, it looks like they don't need to have uh, knowledge of the participation or, you know, they don't have to have a belief in it. But then there's a part of me that feels or thinks perhaps I could be wrong. So just participating in this requires someone to hold a certain set of beliefs. So, for example, if I want to get healed by something by, uh, about, with something and I go to a healer, do I need to believe in that? What's my participation in it? Because on a large scale there, it seems like a group of people wouldn't even need to know what was going on in order for the intention to be effective. Um, yet, is that the same way with individuals? Um, no, uh, their belief is non-essential. Um, first of all, I did want to finish that story just to tell you that three months after our intention, um, the government took back the North. And five months after that, um, that 25-year war was over. So I just want to modify this wow. by saying, yeah, there's a wow here, but did we do this? Who knows? I mean, it ended in a bloody finish, but it ended. Um, you know, there are a lot of variables that you have in any kind of war, and it's very difficult to sort of put it down to, yeah, that was our thoughts. 
Um, sure. But and I have another part of that story to to get back to. But just to answer your question, it's not necessary to have belief. For instance, I do a thing called the intention of the week, and I ask my audience to send intention to someone. People write in with health issues, and we send an intention to them. We we started doing this, and about a couple years ago. Um, a father wrote in about his stepson, Luke, who was 15, and he had broken up with his first major girlfriend and in a fit of existential teenage angst had chucked himself off a 40-foot structure onto hard ground. So as you can imagine, Luke broke everything. He lived, but he broke everything, and he had sustained terrible nerve damage, brain damage. Everything was broken in his body, and actually the the doctors didn't think he was going to make it. So when we heard about this, we started a healing vigil, essentially. So we were sending intention to Luke, um, and his parents were very much in favor of it. Um, And we kept this up over about three weeks. We did it on a weekly basis. Now, Luke mended amazingly quickly. I mean, his doctors were flabbergasted. He was, within a week or two, he was whizzing around. He was going from practically comatose to whizzing around on his wheelchair. And a few month, a week after that, he had his friends come in. And within about a month, he was out of the hospital and back home. That's incredible. You know, he's completely healed. Now, did we do this? Was it a placebo effect? That's one thing we know it wasn't. Because like most 15-year-olds, Luke thought his parents' belief in the power of intention was stupid. So it had nothing to do with his belief. And there's certainly many... He was a little skeptic, for sure. So it was not... He was know. definitely a skeptic. Um, to answer another question, though, I think per- I think permission, when it's an individual, is really essential, unless the person's in a coma. We've had situations for our intentions of the week where people have been in a coma, or we've had babies or fetuses, um, and, you know, we've we've sent intention to them. And... They've had some amazing healings too. So I don't think it is necessary. But here's the really interesting part of the story. I mean, yes, the peace intention experiment for Sri Lanka, and we followed it up with a couple of other ones, also had amazing effects. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is what happened to the participants. Uh, That's the really interesting bit that also um, was shocking and untoward for me. Um, I decided to survey participants in these big experiments just to find out how the experience was for them and also if they'd been able to get on the computer, you know, if they'd been, uh, we had a, some early uh, problems with our website where there's so many people wanted to come on at the same time, we just didn't have the server capacity and it crashed. And so I wanted to make sure everybody had got on and, and everything had worked out for them. And so I surveyed them, and I got back these amazing answers, thousands of them. It felt like I was wired to a higher network. Um, I was tingling all over, had goosebumps and electricity running up and down my arm. I was sobbing uncontrollably. Um, I felt like I was in a tractor beam, like the feeling that you get in Star Trek. You know, and on and on and on, thousands of these, which was amazing enough. People describing what was basically an altered state, um, but also finding other aspects like them saying, I'm getting along better with everybody I come in contact with. I've resolved a lot of disputes that I had. 
um, in my life. I'm speaking to my estranged sister now or my estranged mother for the first time in years. I, I'm in love with everybody I come in contact with. I'm hugging strangers. You know, thousands of these. Lots of peaceful responses though, right? It makes sense if they're intending peace and they're, you know, putting out that energy, they're also imprinting it into their own subconscious, right? Well, that's what seemed to be the case that there was this really strange rebound effect, but also healing effects. They're, they were getting healed. They were, uh, they, a lot of longstanding conditions were, um, were being resolved. Um, they were rejuvenated in their lives. They were, their life's purpose was clear. A number quit their job and decided to join the Peace Corps. That was one instance. And somebody else set up their own therapy business because they felt their work wasn't important enough. You know, something major had happened to them. And I started looking into this a little bit more and looked at Abraham Maslow's description of um, peak experiences, as he called them, or you know, ecstatic or mystical experiences. And they have sort of five components, a very big physical change of some sort, a feeling very different physically, overwhelming feeling of oneness, a feeling of amazing connection with all that is, um, a kind of blinding epiphany of meaning, like you get have these amazing aha moments and everything starts making sense to you. And then finally, this sense of rejuvenation um, where something heals in your life or you have some amazing sense of renewal. And my people had had pretty much all five of those experiences. So we were talking here about some sort of weird ecstatic state, you know, mystical state, mystical experience. Um, and that was really astonishing to me because, again, I never expected any of this. I was looking at the outcome of the experiments. I wasn't looking at the outcome on the participants. But anything happening to them tended to eclipse, even though we had great, great outcomes, the outcome on the participation itself, the effect of participation really really, for me, eclipsed everything going on with the targets. That's incredible. And now I know, and you know, I've read all of your books and you have some tips uh, when you're talking about intention in those arenas about powering up and ways to get into the right mode, to get into there. Where does experience play into this? So how much practice does, is this something also you need to kind of, in your book, do you tell people how to sort of power up for this to get into the right frame of mind? I mean, because I'm sure there's people out there now that are thinking, and I am myself too, you know, so looking forward to, uh, intending and, and getting more into this. So what's that, what's that about? How much practice and experience do you need? Well, okay. Uh, yes, experience counts in the sense that when we ran uh, a seed experiment, we ran it six times. Um, this was with Dr. Gary Schwartz of the University of Arizona. He prepared, his lab prepared four sets of seeds, each with 30 seeds in it. And they, we took photos of them. He took photos of them and sent them to me. And I ran it every time I was speaking in front of some, some group. And then once I ran it over the internet with my international audience. So the first time I did it was in Sydney, Australia, and 700 people there. 
Um, and remember, we're sending intention to just the photographs of the seeds, not the seeds themselves, just a symbolic representation. Nevertheless, we had an effect. And remember, the seeds are sitting there at University of Arizona, 8,000 miles away. We're sending intention to a representation of them. Um, and that worked. And then we ran it in Rhinebeck, New York, in an audience of about 100, and that worked. And Dallas and LA and then over the internet and also South Carolina in front of a group of healing touch practitioners. Every time we ran it, the seeds sent intention grew higher than controls, but they grew twice as high as control with the healing touch practitioners. So in that instance, experience really did count. However, I should also say that when we're looking at these little groups and their power, you know, the groups of eight and the healing intentions. I was so blown away by this. I decided to have a university study done on these groups. So I, Life University, the largest chiropractic university in the world, offered to put their psychology department at my disposal, which was just amazing because we're, we're carrying on experiments. But one of the ones we did last year that was just so compelling was brainwave studies of people participating. And we found amazing changes in people who were complete novices when doing these powerful group intentions, these little group intentions. Again, just sending intention to somebody in the group to heal them in some way. Um, when they were in that state, there was a global quieting of the brain. And this was repeated over all of the participants that were measured in, in uh, seven, six, seven groups. Um, and one of the most interesting was a quieting of the parietal lobes of the brain. Those are the parts of the brain that govern our sense of us versus not us. You know, where we end and the rest of the universe begins so we can orient ourselves in space and also feel individual. That was turned way down. And also the executive portion of the brain, the frontal lobes, that was also turned down particularly, you know, the parts of the brain that are involved in worry and doubt, those were turned down too. So, and they had other parts of the brain also that were, had this kind of global quieting. Now, that would be the brain signature of somebody in a state of ecstatic oneness. And that is indeed this, the case. Dr. Andrew Newberg, um, formerly of University of Pennsylvania, has studied and done brain research on all kinds of people involved in ecstatic prayer, from Sufi masters to Buddhist monks to nuns in the midst of prayer, even people who are part of uh, Pentecostal churches speaking in tongues. And he found in almost all instances pretty much the exact same brainwave signature as my people. However, there was one really big, important difference. Um, my people did not go through years of training. Um, they were complete novices. They'd never done this in group intention before. They did not go through an hour or two of priming, as most of these people in these other practices um, did. We didn't need to give them ayahuasca. <laughs> we didn't need to put them in a sweat lodge. We didn't need to have them put their head between their knees or, you know, get down on their knees or, or speak in tongues. All we gave them was a 13-minute video that I recorded to explain 
to them what they should do. Right. Sort of, sort of, I'm sure you were guiding them as to sort of the types of thoughts or things they could be visualizing, thinking while they were delivering intention to a participant. Yeah. But the point is, yeah, I was giving them some guidance based on what's worked best for us in the past with intention and what's worked best in the scientific laboratory. And as you say, in my book, The Intention Experiment, and also in The Power of Eight, I provide my little program, Powering Up, which is a, um, it's kind of a distillation of the common practices, the practices that are common among different kinds of masters of intention, Buddhist monks, um, Qigong masters, master healers. Um, They have a lot of individual um, things they do, but they also have a lot of commonalities, and I tried to put them together into a simple program. But my point is, you know, yes, you do get better with practice, and there are some really good practices too. But, you know, you don't need to study for years with a Sufi master, and you don't need all that other equipment like a sweat log. All you need is a group. All you need is a small group to have more or less a fast track to the miraculous. Now, this may sound like an obvious question because you've touched on it already a little bit, but in your experience here and from what you've learned, what why group, why is it that group thought induces transformational states both for the recipient and the participant? I mean, we see the the effects of that. Uh, obviously, you were blown away by the participants and how it affected them versus, I mean, the, 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 the intenders. Are there some more nuances there and connections? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I spent most of my book, the power of my new book, The Power of Eight, trying to figure out what, out, what on earth happened to these people. <laughs> and I looked at it from every possible angle. Yeah. What's, what's your, what's your um, assessment on why you think that um, it induces transformational states for both individuals? Okay. There's a really important piece of the self-help mo- uh, movement that's essentially missing, which is getting off of yourself. Um, I think that, you know, the self-help movement has been very good in many regards, but it's also a little bit dangerous because it is incredibly focused on the self. And what I think there's one big piece of this whole thing is altruism. Um, When you look at the science of altruism, it's amazing. It's like a bulletproof vest. Um, There was a really interesting um, study of prayer that was carried out by a priest and psychologist. Um, he, he was both. And he wanted to see whether or not prayer could affect depression. So he got 400 volunteers together who were people who suffered from depression. And he asked them to divide into two groups. And one group would get the prayer and the other group would do the praying. So he had them do this. And afterward, he measured the effects. And he found that the people who had got the prayer did well. They were getting better. But the people who did the praying, they did even better still. And that is very much borne out in all of the literature on altruism. Um, It's better to give than receive. The people who give in any capacity live longer, are healthier, are happier, less depressed, more connected, you name it less minor illness, less major illness. And there's a very interesting look at that um, in a study that was done of people who live the good life, what we would call, you know, what Americans would call the Ameri- following the American dream, having lots of money, having 
the you know a happy good life chasing pleasure having a lot of holidays a lot of vacations all of that stuff having a lot of material stuff when they looked at their immune system markers these people were disaster their immune system markers were looked like they were going to be dropping like flies they were total candidates for alzheimer's cancer heart attack everything whereas they compared them with another group who were people who were living maybe a less affluent life but a life of meaning where they had you know a real important purpose in their lives and these guys had really powerful immune systems these guys were going to live forever and so i think that what you see over and over again is as soon as you start getting off of yourself just magic happens and it's call it what we will i mean i found it with a number of people in master classes of mine because you know to test this even further because a doubting thomas here believe me as i say over years i've been testing this studying this trying to figure out what this is apologizing for it um <laughs> even just saying look i don't know what this is i'm just the journalist here <laughs> right you know. not crazy just studying yeah. it yeah yeah just recording it so i started looking at this by creating my own little petri dish aside from the life university studies which are still carrying on we're now looking at other aspects of immune system markers um we wanted to i wanted to study people up close so i organized a master class in 2015 and had told the people i was going to do 7 weeks of a weekly course with them this is all over 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 skype uh, or um uh maestro and that for the rest of the year i was going to put them into small groups and monitor them and they were and i had them just keep track and keep sending me information about how they were in all areas of their lives their relationships their health their their career or life's purpose you know etc and it was really extraordinary first of all of the people who stayed together in groups which was about 150 pretty much 100% of those people had major life transformations they had they one got over chronic fatigue one another got over lifelong depression somebody else her skin started repigmenting um from vitiligo another woman regained most of her hearing and aside from the the health situations that were improving amazingly um there were also people who got their dream jobs um who set up the business they'd always wanted to set up who reestablished certain relationships or improved them to some amazing degree you know got windfall five big financial windfalls amazing stuff but um it was really interesting to watch the people who were stuck um there was one woman called Andy and nothing she could do would get her off of her financial precipice that she was on and she was in the middle of a divorce and had sold already sold a gift shop that she'd run and wanted something new and there was nothing coming along that was steady and she was really worried about her finances and we tried everything you know i had catch up calls with these guys and i'd have her andy go back to her seed moment and try to work out where she had had a felt a sense of scarcity and send intention to that person and that former self and you know on and on we tried all kinds of stuff nothing so then when we started doing the intention for luke at that point i had told everybody no intending for yourselves just get off of yourselves start intending for luke and at that point literally the next week 
Andy gets a call absolutely out of the blue from somebody she hardly knew, just out of the blue, offering her this amazing job. And numerous things like that happened to the people who, once they got off of themselves, another woman in the group, Lisa, wanted to write a book. She's a therapist who had worked out a way to do body work for trauma patients. And she wanted to tell the world about it, but she'd never written a book. She's terrified, terrified of the marketing aspect, didn't know how to write very well, needed an editor and run through two or three of them by that time and was getting nowhere. And nothing the group was doing was getting her anywhere. So she decided to drop, to take my advice, drop herself and start intending for somebody else in the group. And she kept focusing on that other person. And lo and behold, out of nowhere, again, she was walking past a shop and had some sudden uncontrollable urge to go into that shop. Didn't even need anything from the shop. Just was told by a little voice, go in there. She goes in there and she meets this woman who's an acquaintance. She says hi to her. And then as they get talking, it turns out the woman is a book coach, a former publisher and a book coach. Of course. (laughs) Of course. And she offers to absolutely walk Lisa through the entire process, which she does. She Gets, makes sure she gets an editor who helps her and helps her finish the book. She gets somebody to help her get over her fear of getting shot down in the marketing and also giving her information about how to market. Lo and behold, the book becomes a number one Amazon bestseller in several categories. So, you know, there were many, many instances of this, but it really happened when people got off of themselves. I get the signs of altruism and even gratitude, and I understand the state one can be in when you're, you know, positively thinking for another or for a group of people or a country. Do you think part of that's because you have now cut off the the part where you are, like, obsessing over your problem, too, that just getting away from it for a minute or when you get back to it? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just makes sense to me that you're also then alleviating some resistance you might be actively having in those times when you're thinking about your own issues. Yes. Oh, I think there's definitely a piece of that. Definitely. It's, it's like somebody said, it's like the watched pot not boiling syndrome. You know, you get off of it, stop watching the pot and it'll boil. Um, there is also another physical thing that's really interesting that happens. When people do altruistic things, they fire a, a nerve called the vagus nerve. Now, this is the biggest nerve in the body that just winds its way from the top of the spine all the way through and touches all the major organs. And one of its jobs is to release all those feel-good hormones like oxytocin. Um, but another thing that happens that when it gets fired during altruistic acts, acts of loving care and selfless care for others is it has a marked effect on the immune system and it keeps kind of creating this kind of virtuous circle of the immune system getting better and better. So I think that's another piece of it, certainly on the people who got wealth um, physically, but it also would make them feel better, more relaxed, more all of those things that may have something to do with it. So that so that even if you're sick, let's say, with cancer, and it's so bad that you can't go for a walk or go volunteer and put yourself out there to maybe get outside yourself, you still can do it from home through your mind, through your vibration, through intending either through some of these experiments, through your programs that or that you have online for the community, or just with your own groups and your own people. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be a physical group. Let's take your example again. Um, it can be a virtual group. I mean, all of my people on my master classes meet virtually on Skype or on Google Hangouts. So many of them who feel like this is their intention family, who would die for each other, have never actually physically ever met. Okay, well, this is great because this goes into like, how do we create our own groups? And also too, listen, you know, you know this as well as I do sometimes, and this is probably part of your fear when you were going through this years ago, which is when you tap into this and you use it in your own life and you see the power of it, sometimes people around you and you're excited to share it and you can come across some negativity by trying to actually push positivity. People aren't ready to hear it. And sometimes you're in a lonely world there. And sometimes that means you have to hang out less with those negative naysayers, but it's also then if you're in the middle of somewhere where, you know, how do I find these people who are also believers and interested in this? So how can we do this? How can we get a group of eight? One place that you can find groups and start connecting with people is on my website, lynnmctaggart.com. Um, we just ran a giant American peace intention experiment where we had tens of thousands of people around the world participate. And they've been connecting with each other on my social media ever since. On my website, we have a community section where people can start connecting with others and create a group. So if you don't have anyone locally, um, you can do, do it that way. As far as locally, look to these people in a book group or a church group or a neighborhood, and just try it out. And one thing to do is to let them try it. Just say, look, suspend your, you know, as long as they're open to trying it, say, look, let's just suspend your judgment here or any kind of negativity about it and just try. I have so many people who are converts. I mean, one of the people who participated in our Sri Lanka peace intention experiment was so interesting because she was traveling on the last day, on the eighth day of the experiment. So she asked her partner, her atheist, skeptical boyfriend, to be on the, on the uh, website at the designated time and just light a candle for it because we were all lighting candles on the last day, lighting candles on the last day. So he did, and he felt this overwhelming incredible vortex of energy that he felt part of. And he felt like he was entering some sort of altered state. And he was just shocked about it. And he kept pressing her for information about it afterward to try to figure out what on earth had happened to him. And it was so interesting because he has changed ever since. I just spoke to her recently. She wrote up all of her experiences and said how it had changed her life. And it made her resolve not to overwork again. She had been working too hard, made her relationship with her partner much closer. He's now into all of this stuff. You know, she's a Reiki master and she he allows her to do Reiki he never did before and all sorts of things. So when people do experience the power of this, um, it can create some believers. So, you know, I would suggest doing that, but, you know, everybody can create their own group. You can do it at work. Try if you have some sympathetic colleagues, do an intention for all of you to do better at work or to send an intention to somebody who needs a little bit more healing and see or needs more help at work. See what happens. It's a great way to bring people closer together. And it's, you know, anybody can do this. It's really wonderful. And all of your work is all in this arena 
and and leads up to your new book, The Power of Eight, Harnessing the Miraculous Energies of a Small Group to Heal Others, Your Life, and the World. I am so grateful you came on to introduce your work to us because a lot of people, again, and I, I want to point out, because you mentioned the word skeptic a couple of times, and I forgot. I think it's Dr. Wayne Dyer who, who said this, but I'm not sure whose quote this actually is, but I love the quote that says, no one ever built a statue to a skeptic. <laughs> You know, and it's so true, right? There's not one statue out there where we worship. Oh, there, what's that statue of? Oh, that's the the guy that never believed in a damn thing. Like no one's built that statue. So just just take the first step and look into it. And for me, I think what really what your work and I'm sure what all of your fans like me resonate with is I want to look at the science. The science does mean something to me. There is a part of that that validates it. I am already a believer, but it reinstills and just remagicifies the whole thing every time I look at a new experiment and look at what's being done out there. And that's really all that you are doing. We are going to put all of your websites and your book, of course, can be found on Amazon. We'll put everything in the show notes for people to link up and hopefully start a power of eight. I mean, we've got a lot of healthy people here listening, but there's a lot of people I know just aside from the intention on health. um, I love all of the other varieties of this, even things like you've mentioned, rekindling a, a passion for something in life that could even come up out of this. And wouldn't that be worth a shot, right? Well, this is it. And I mean, I think that's, I think we all, we all want proof. Um, And we all want to feel that this is valid. We want to get beyond woo-woo. You know, Western mind needs proof. And of course, that's me more than anybody. I mean, that's, as I say, I felt like a 21st century doubting Thomas when loads of people were saying, ooh, power of intention. I just had a lot of inconvenient questions about it. You know, so I do this really to convince myself, too. Um, I do really, really appreciate the science. But this Doing this work and doing this work about the power of eight has kind of moved me into an area of being right at this place where I feel like I still like evidence and proof, but I have diced the power of small groups into every possible um, configuration to try to figure out why this happens. And it's partly this altruism idea. It's partly the power of intention and group mind. And it's also the power of the group, the idea that, you know, we, somebody has your back that is a total stranger. I mean, that's an amazingly powerful thing. We just don't have that anymore. And also a lot of my people in these groups have said, when I make a vow to someone um, and a group, it's like I've put it out there to a universe, to the universe. I'm going to work all much harder to, to, to get better or to find out the cause of my illness or something like that. So all of these, all of these things contribute to why these little groups are so powerful. But there is an X factor. And I just have to finally say, you know, I'm a believer. Um, I am a reluctant apostle of the power of these groups. <laughs> no, it's it's really amazing. Um, thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. This was an area that, you know, with the popularity of intention and law of attraction, this was the area that needed to be jumped into to get this other side of it for us. And 
Um, I am also a believer, and we talk about it as much as I can on the show, about mind-affecting matter, and it's so fascinating. I, I suggest any everybody here to look into your work. Lynn McTaggart, would you like to leave any uh, anything else with our audience? Yes. Um, I believe that now is probably the most important time to do these kinds of groups. I mean, one of the things we wanted to do with the American Intention Experiment was to see the rebound power of it on creating more peace in America. And that's what we're going to be studying when we look at our results. Um, Because the effect, the hoped for effect, was to create more peace between people, which we'd seen in a number of other peace experiments we did. We did one for 9-11, one of the anniversaries, the 10th anniversary. And we found that Muslims, we had thousands of Muslims participating as well as Westerners. And the Muslims and the Americans were forgiving each other. So I really hope there were some Republicans and Democrats on that American peace intention experiment so they can start forgiving each other. Yeah, we need the work here more. (laughs) Yeah, we need it in the States. You need to get over here. I know, I know. So we, um, if people want to find out more about me, my workshops, my master classes, and my um, just all of my material, come to lynnmctaggart.com and you'll find everything you need. Thank you so much. We will put all of the links into the show notes so people can easily access those websites. And again, The Power of Eight, you can find it on Amazon or through Lynn's website. Thank you so much for your time and for all of your work. Thank you so much, Al. It's been a pleasure. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.